rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair near you. Definitely grab one and turn there. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, if you're not familiar, Matthew's in the New Testament, kind of towards the end of your Bible, after the book of Malachi, before Mark and Matthew 7. As we continue in our time of worship oh, for the next hour or so, studying the Word of God. Matthew chapter 7, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew. Taking each verse as it comes here. Matthew 7, continuing our study from last week. Well, you may have heard the story. It was the summer of 2008. And one baby after another was getting sick. Some were dying, all having the same problems, kidney damage, kidney failure, uh, kidney stones, with almost 99% being under the age of three. The New York Times reported that by fall of 2008, 300,000 Chinese babies and toddlers had been sickened Six killed, all by the same thing. An investigation began, and it was found that some of the largest Chinese dairy companies, one in particular called Sanlu, and a few others were adding a dangerous chemical into baby milk formula. It was found that watered-down milk was being doctored with a chemical called melamine. Melamine. Used a chemical often used in plastics and fertilizers, and what it does, it falsely raises the protein count, the appearance of protein. It makes it appear as if there is more protein than there really is. Of course, the chemical causes kidney stones and other illnesses. The New York Times reported in August 2008 that the European standards typically allow up to 20 milligrams of melamine per kilogram in food products, but some Sanlu products were found to have over 100 times that much. 100 times. New York Times also reported, quote, between May and September 2008, when Sanlu stopped production, prosecutors said the company made more than 900 tons of melamine-contaminated powdered baby formula. In 2012, by the way, the man who first alerted authorities of the scandal was murdered in China. The World Health Organization, quote, referred to the incident as one of the largest food safety events ever had to deal with in recent years, and a spokesman said the problem was, quote, clearly not an isolated accident, but a large-scale intentional activity to deceive consumers for simple, basic, short-term profits. Well, in the passage we have been studying, and we will study tonight in Matthew 7, 15 to 20, we see uh, this sort of a thing, proverbially speaking. Christ says that then... 2,000 years ago and now into the future, in our day, there will be foreign additives brought to the Bible that will be very harmful. Individuals who some maliciously, some perhaps not as much, who nevertheless would add to or would take away from the the eternal life-giving purity and value of the Word of God, the 66 books of the Bible, and in doing so, they would harm many. Not few, many. In doing so, leading hordes away from the true knowledge of Christ and heaven and the love of Christ and towards the broad road of destruction as we studied in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. And as many necessarily were upset about this melamine controversy, Individuals who would distort healthy milk formula, which leads babies away from physical health. We ought to, at times, Christ as well does, calls us to be on guard for the distortion of the pure milk of the Word of God. Adding to, distorting it, taking away, that would do something far worse than cause a kidney stone. But eternal damage... Internal damage and leading people away from the love of Christ, the Christ of the Bible, who is the only Christ that can save. He is the Christ 
the, the Son of God, God Himself, who offers indiscriminately eternal life and forgiveness of sins to anybody who will come to Him by simple faith. The Christ who, who, who went, came out of heaven being God, became a man, fully God, fully man, lived this life of perfect love, perfection, human moral perfection that no one could do, and then He went to the cross on purpose... And the Bible teaches that he died there and stood in for us as a substitute to be punished for all our sins. And then he rose from the dead so that by bowing the knee in faith to him alone, not any works that we would do, we would have forgiveness and we could die in peace knowing we will enter into the presence of God. There are foreign additives brought to the Bible all the time then, 2,000 years ago, before, and there are now. And so it's necessary. Sometimes people say, you know, why do we have to focus on the negative? Because now and then we have to recognize the spiritual melamine that's being added to the Bible and distorting people away from the true knowledge and love of Christ. So with that, we will study this again tonight in part two. We have a lot to get through. Follow along as I read. I'm going to start in Matthew verse uh, seven, excuse me, verse 13 in chapter seven, and I'll read through verse 23. Matthew 7, chapter chapter 7, verse 13 through verse 23. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Verse 15. Beware of the false prophets. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And and, and your name cast out demons and, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, here we are in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It is one sermon that Jesus is probably preaching very frequently as he goes throughout the many Galilean villages in the first century, the greatest sermon ever preached. And we are focusing on verse 15 through 20. Christ would have us study this, as we said, because he loves people enough. He loves his word enough, which guides people into the knowledge of the truth that he would, he would let us know now and then, look, there is spiritual melamine out there that will lead you astray. False teaching, false teachers. We began our study last week on this critical issue. I would encourage you to get it. This will build on it, uh, on that study. It is comprehensive. And as we did, we gave an example of one of these false prophets in our day, as we studied last week, Joseph Smith being one of the most notorious false prophets in American history. That study, again, it's online. And tonight, we'll briefly, just to sort of introduce, and we'll get into the text, look again at another one of America's most notorious false prophets, whose influence has been wide and tragic. So it was the early 1870s. 1870s, and a young teenager in Pittsburgh had just become a partner in business with his father taking on ownership of several stores. During this, these years, this teenager, he had an appearance of zeal for Christianity. And then in his mid-teens, a friend began to question him about the reliability of the Bible and the veracity of Christian teaching. He himself began questioning many of the historic biblical teachings, the clear teachings of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the doctrine of hell. And then he began to embrace some Adventist teachings, claiming that, among other things, that the end times had begun in 1799, 
that Christ had returned invisibly to earth in 1874 and had been crowned King of Heaven four years later, and that all Christians who already died would be resurrected before the end of 1878. He then said that 1914 would be Armageddon. Of course, he was wrong, and in the meantime, he sold many of his businesses, made a lot of money. He was forced to re-examine his teachings, and soon after, in 1881, Charles Taze Russell founded what is called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which became a giant publishing outfit, soon after which he put into print some 16 million documents. Charles Taze Russell married in 1897, though it lasted only a few months. History records his wife later filed for divorce on the grounds of mental cruelty. And in 1908, the Watchtower Society took up its headquarters in Brooklyn, New York, where it is today, despite many splits and factions. And in 1931, the group came to be known as Jehovah's Witnesses, who today claim to have 8.2 million followers. I'll use the Watchtower Society or Jehovah Witnesses or JWs sort of interchangeably. Now, JWs do not believe that Charles Taze Russell was the founder of their religion. The Watchtower writes, quote, since Jesus is the founder of Christianity, we view him as the founder of our organization. But the Watchtower is a false religion founded by one of America's most notorious false prophets for many reasons, among other things, because they deny some of the fundamental doctrines of biblical Christianity, one being, of course, they deny that Jesus is God. And this is one of the first things they'll tell you when you get the knock on the door. The Watchtower writes, quote, The first human God created, created Adam is called the Son of God. Similarly, they say the Bible teaches that Jesus was created by God, with no text referenced by, by which they might back up this untenable claim. So they say, quote, Jesus is also called a Son of God. God created Jesus before he created Adam. They also say Jesus did not resurrect physically from the dead, only spiritually. And to further the error, the Watchtower writes that Jesus actually is the Archangel Michael. Deuteronomy, uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 10. They say, quote, the Bible indicates Michael is another name for Jesus Christ before and after his life on earth. And there are massive problems with this. Not the least of which Hebrews 1.5. The writer of scripture says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. You are my son. With so many of the JW teachings, one of the great problems is you could never just open the Bible and read it cover to cover, honestly, a logical interpretation, and arrive at any of these teachings. They have to be manufactured and spoon-fed. The Watchtower denies the Trinity, of course, that God is a triune God. Since Jesus is not God, they furthermore teach that the Holy Spirit is not God nor a real person. They say, quote, the Holy Spirit is God's power and action, an active force, an energy. Disciples of Charles Taze Russell, by the way, are, very, are often very well versed in how to argue the Watchtower's erroneous doctrine. They're heavily trained from day one, often putting many Christians to shame with how diligent they are to study and prioritize the knowledge of their false faith. They can quote many verses. They're taught how to refute counter-arguments. Furthermore, when, as Ron, Rode, Ron Rhodes writes in his excellent book, Reasoning from the Scriptures with JWs, he says, the Watchtower Society warns new followers that friends and relatives may be used by Satan to try to dissuade them from remaining, remaining with the JWs. And one former JW says, when someone does try to dissuade a new member in the way, it makes, in this way, it makes the Watchtower Society appear to be a true prophet. This, in turn, encourages the new convert to be even more loyal. And referring to them as a cult merely strengthens their resolve to adhere to the false religion. That, of course, they're never allowed to question the false doctrine. They operate under the fear of disfellowship when they do. And they're warned that if they leave, they'll be shunned by family and friends who remain. The common JW Bible is called the New World Translation. Translation Filled with errors. 
One of the leading scholars and authorities in the original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, Bruce Metzger, he writes that the New World Translation, the JWs use, of the Greek is a, quote, frightful mistranslation, erroneous and reprehensible. The Watchtower absolutely butchers the Greek when they translate, the, translate it into the English. And they t- take away intentionally from the deity of Jesus Christ. John 1, 1, for example, they say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Lower G. Lowercase G. Many, many other things we could say. But since the Watchtower denies the deity of Christ, they have a Christ who is an ineffectual Savior, by whom forgiveness of sins may not be attained, by whom you may not go to heaven, therefore it is a false religion founded by a false prophet altogether, tragically. More could be said, and this is not intended to be an exhaustive treatment of Watchtower doctrine. On the blog later this week, we will discuss this a little bit more. But if you're here tonight and you do embrace Watchtower teaching, I'm glad you're here. We would love to talk to you more and uh, discuss some of these things after our study. But in the meantime, we're going to get into the words of Christ because there exists false prophets, those who would do far worse things than introduce kidney stones into babies. Charles Taze Russell, no doubt one of history's most notorious false prophets. So the Sermon on the Mount. What does verse 15 through 20 have to do with this command in verse 13 to 14? As Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Well, the narrow gate is indeed shown as a difficult one to enter. He's talking about going to heaven and eternal life. And he goes here after that because false prophets would be those who would lead individuals away from the true saving narrow way. So with that big picture of our study, let's get into the text here. It's in your bulletin. A main idea, just sort of a helicopter view of what we're seeing in the text is this. Because Christ cares for his glory, his word, and his people... We are to guard against false teachings and teachers who would steer people away from their narrow road to eternal life. This is the main idea here because Christ cares for His glory. And His Word and His people were to guard against false teachings and teachers who would steer people away from the narrow narrow road to eternal life. Our outline tonight will be this. From the text, we'll see eight truths for understanding false teachings and teachers. Eight truths for understanding false teaching and teachers. We did a couple last week, just quick review. Number one, we saw this in verse 15. False teachings and teachers are things we're to guard against, very simply. We're outraged when companies falsify protein and milk formula, aren't we? And we should be. And there's a sense in which we should have a loving anger when these things happen with the truth of God's word. Notice verse 15, Christ says, beware of the false prophets. That Greek word beware, it has the idea of of guard against. And it means continually in the Greek. Guard against always. This is something we're called to do all throughout Scripture. A couple more verses just to, to show how prominent this is. In the Bible, Jude 3, Jude says, Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that notice you contend earnestly. Contend, not just contend, but earnestly for the faith which has once for all handed down to the saints. First Timothy 4, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves. Notice how the serious language, deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. I mean, those are serious terms. And he gives an example through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. These are some examples of false teachings. Those who say that Christians are better if they forbid marriage and on and on. And then 2 John 7, for many deceivers. Notice, not some, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Many. And so for that reason, we're to beware. Be on guard. Number one, we saw last week. Second, We saw last week, because it's a serious matter, false teaching and teachers must be biblically defined. Biblically defined. False prophets, of course, are those who influence people in influence, who claim to speak for God, appear to influence even for some good, but do not. 
But, but this term, false prophet or false teacher, it's not something that we can just flippantly slap on somebody. And this is a serious issue. We have to know what this means when we're going to appropriately label this. In the Old Testament, we saw last week and New Testament, a prophet was someone who received 100% error-free words from God. And so that's why the prophets, their words went into the Bible. And so if someone today claims to be receiving words from God, then they better start writing a 67th, 68th, 69th, 70th book of the Bible. But there are no more prophets as defined biblically because we have all the words from God that we need from Genesis to Revelation. Nevertheless, there are false teachers that come. And we studied Deuteronomy 13, 18, and Jeremiah 23. A couple of quick conclusions we, we saw that we can made about, make about false prophets. We saw from those texts, those who, they are those who teach a God who differs from the God of Scripture. Even if he's called Jesus, even if, he, even if we use the Bible, like Charles Taze Russell did. Second, we saw false prophets are an individual who teaches what is claimed to have originated from what God told them though is outside of or differs from Scripture. Oh, God told me this, but if it differs from Scripture, the Bible we studied last week said they're a false prophet. Number three, we saw a false prophet can be one who uh, teaches dreams, visions, and experiences as biblical doctrine, and I should say in there, that differ from biblical teaching. But they say, oh, you know, like Joseph Smith, he claimed that the angel Moroni came down and showed him his golden plates and so on. And, and the content of which differ radically from biblical doctrine. He's a false prophet, therefore. And we saw fourth that a false prophet is one who uh, teaches a different gospel than that of Scripture. In other words, that teaches a different way to get to heaven than simple faith alone. Than, than the beauty of, of simple faith alone in the Jesus of the Bible. If someone propagates contrary to that, they are a false prophet. Galatians 1, 8, 9, we looked at that as well. So underneath this all, the big idea is that God would have us maintain a reverence for Him, for His Word. That we don't need to be adding to this we don't need to be getting cute and clever and saying, well, look what melamine I can bring into this. We don't need to do that. That we can, we can trust that God loves us enough because He does and is a good enough God that, that we can have this reverence for His Word as we see all over. Psalm 138 is one place. I'll put it up here. God sa- David says, I'll bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Notice he says, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. Do you see that there? He's saying a reverence for God looks like a reverence for his word. We are to respect the Bible as much as we respect God. Isn't that interesting? Not adding, change it, playing fast and loose. Why? Because it comes from God. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge. Psalm 119, 48. Notice, notice the psalmist here. I will lift up. That was an Old Testament form of worship. I will lift up my hands towards your word or your commandments, I, which I love. You see that love for the word of God there? That's the attitude we're to have. That's the idea here. Do we love the Word of God? And then Isaiah 66, of course, God says, to this one I will look. Wow, we want to know, we want to know what that is, God. To this one I'll look. To this one that, that is pleasing to me is the idea. Him who is humble, who is contrite of spirit. The word means, means you're, you're sorrowful over your own sin. You're more irritated by your own sin than others is the idea. And then lastly, trembles at my word trembles. Not, oh, it takes it like it's one of many hot dog stands at the carnival and can kind of visit it as I wish and maybe flip, flip it, flip loose and fan and all. Trembles at the Word of God. That's what, a lot of what's underneath here. Second, third. 
False teachings and teachers often have similarities to biblical truth. Similarities. And this is where Christ's warning gets uh, a little more helpful. They have similarities. Where is that in the text? Look back at verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you. Notice what it says. In sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, this is quite another thing then. Sheep here, it's a, it's a metaphor in the Bible to describe God's genuinely saved people who believe in the biblical Christ. They're not better than anybody. They just have come to believe in the Christ in this book and they are, they are sheep. They are part of the flock of God. False teachers, though, notice, they appear to be the same. Notice the words, they come in sheep's clothing. And that Greek word there for clothing, it means like a big garment that would cover much of of an individual. It doesn't just mean a mask or like shoes or a small covering. Just, well, a little part of them will be covered. No, it means covers all of them. It means they will not always be obvious. Their true self is covered. Which means there will be many apparent similarities between false teachers and true ones. Okay, that's what they're disguising themselves. That's very obvious in the text. They come in looking like sheep. You know, Charles Taze Russell, he called his society in the beginning the Bible students. Right? Oh, they, these are sheep. They study the Bible. There'll be some apparent similarities. I, I want to just point out 12 brief implications you could add to this, I'm sure. I want to point out 12 quick implications of this truth that false teaching and teachers will have similarities. We'll go through these pretty quick. You might not have time to write them down, but you can get them later. But number one, one implication is false teaching very simply is not always easy to recognize as false. It's not always easy to recognize. We should expect that it'll be hard. Similarity in teaching and content. Second, there will be just a general, an apparent similarity in general. Similarity to the purposes of God. Similarities to the true God. Again, notice the text. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Covered up. Lots of apparent similarities. Oh, there's some wool there. There's even some hooves. Uh, They maybe are sounding like a sheep. Maybe they're walking like a sheep too. A lot of similarities. Number two, number three. Apparent similarity in character and personality. At first, at first appearance, they, they may be likable. They may be a very moral person, outwardly. D.A. Carson says at first glance, they show biblical piety. They appear godly on the surface. In fact, they may even appear more likable than true teachers. How do we know that? I mean, why would that be? Because again, they do not want to be identified as something that is harmful or unhelpful. Therefore, they will try hard to be likable. Their goal is not to be sincerely faithful to the word of God. Their goal is to instead not be identified as a wolf. Okay, that's a fine, very important difference there. Their goal may be to like, be a likable person, to have people like them, to be favorable. And this is evidence in Scripture. Paul says this. He says this in Romans 16. He says, watch out. I urge you, brothers, to the church in Rome, 65-ish AD. He says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Notice what he says. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. Do you see that there? our own appetites, and by their smooth... Notice, he doesn't say, oh, by their obvious appearance that they're wolves. No, by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Which is why we are to be on guard. Not not mean speech, smooth speech. Jude 16, following after their own lust, they speak arrogantly, flattering people. Flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. So they may be very moral, very, very likable. Also, they, they may make it a point to not offend. Again, they're flatterers. Todd Murray, he writes this, a very helpful quote. He says, the hallmark of a false prophet is that they speak in such a way that they offend no one. 
They offend no one. Oh, our doctrine about polygamy has become offensive to contemporary culture. Well, let's change it so it's not offensive anymore. One example. And if something does, then perhaps the teaching will change and so on. Okay, fourth. Very simply, they're not going to identify themselves as false teachers. Again, they come in sheep's clothes. They're not going to say, hey, everybody, I'm a false teacher right here. Again, they're wearing a sheep trench coat and more. Number five, they make attempts to associate with the sheep. Notice he says, they come to you. They come to you. They will approach you. They will make it a point. They have... uh, They will approach you. They will go to those who are God's people, make intentional attempts to associate with them. Fifth. Sixth. They have an external or formal over an internal genuine obedience to Christ and spirituality. Very important distinction. Because they're not sheep on the inside, just on the outside. And so they they don't have a genuine heart love for Christ a genuine brokenness over their sin that is contrary to Christ, these kind of things. Therefore, they have an external former over internal genuine obedience to Christ and spirituality. They go through the motions, but inwardly it's not happening. Seventh, similarly, they have an external formal but not internal genuine unity with Christ's true church, with the local church, with the body of Christ. They're, they're often lone rangers. You know, a, a, a new thing they produce. Everyone come to me. It's their agenda, their way, their show. Little genuine desire to unite with God's people. They don't have a sincere inner desire to be accountable to the local church or to church leadership. They often are not passionate about the body of Christ or connecting with the body of Christ or belonging unless they themselves can be the head of their own thing because they're after this intoxicating thrill of starting something new or of being the leader or whatever it might be. They do not want accountability. A surface level, but not a genuine inner level. Neither are they concerned, as we all should be, about ensuring that they stand in a long line of historical faithfulness to biblical doctrine and the Word of God. They don't really care a lot about that. Biblical history, that's peripheral. Seventh, eighth, they may not believe themselves that they're a false teacher with false teaching. As we studied last week, in in Joseph Smith, in his autobiography, he said, look, many people came to me and said, this didn't really happen to you. And, And he insists in his autobiography, if you read it, he says, it did happen to me. It did. And so you you couldn't argue with him that his experience didn't happen. Instead, you you would have to argue and say, look, man, maybe this did happen, but it's contrary to the Word of God. Therefore, experience is not God. The Word of God is the authority and is the words of God, regardless of what happens to you. It's a matter of if we're going... Are the things that happen to us going to become biblical doctrines that supersede what is already written? Or is what is written by God going to trump those? It must. That's how we have to argue. Don't argue about, oh, whether this happened or you saw that or dreamed this or whatever. Just say, what does Scripture say? Is it contrary? If it is, it needs to go. I have seen some crazy things. I have encountered, quote, power encounters in various churches that are blatantly... uh, in opposition to the Word of God, therefore we must not make a teaching or a practice out of them. What are they? I don't know. They just happen. Craziness. Number nine, they may not be seething inside with malicious motives. The question I receive often is, well, Eric, do they have to have these cruel, like grueling motives? They may, but they can appear and presume themselves to have motives that are not malicious. They can, there can just be this self-deception. This does not, however, mean that they have biblical motives that are pure. It does not mean that. They're wolves inside. They're clothed as sheep. Number nine. Number ten, often a powerful personality. They are often a powerful personality. Often they'll have this alluring persona, a dynamic presence, that often their presence and their hipness, their way to kind of jockey things and 
and wow a crowd and look here and mesmerize people either with their morality or their personality or whatever. They're able to, uh, you know, throw in some biblical language in there and, and a superficial association with God's people and therefore they draw people away. That's how they do it. Instead of just preaching the word of God verse by verse and letting God's word do the work. Ian Hamilton says, we're all easily impressed by powerful personalities. Look, I know that this is might kind of grind against some of us, but it's the next verse in Scripture, and I would really encourage you to receive this. Christ's words on this. It's not something we need to talk about every day, but when it's the next verse, it's super important we need to talk about it. And, and, and millions of people are being deceived and will end up in hell one day because of it. Bottom line, I guarantee you. I beg you to, to soften your heart and receive this if, if it's hard for you as it's been for me at times. Number 11, there can be a spectrum of false prophets. On one side, very obvious wolves. On another, I mean, hard to tell. You know, just their, their costume is super, super good. Number 12, it's possible for false teaching and teachers to be very popular. Very popular. I mean, Joseph Smith today has about 15 million. Charles Taze Russell, 8.2. And there are many, many others. Where do we get that in the context here? Because in verse 13, Christ said, Notice, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. So, by that verse, we can say there are many being led to destruction. Which means false teachers often can be very popular. Large influence. It doesn't mean they always will be, but they can. Entire denominations, entire religions, and so on. Point being here is, look, there will be many similarities. And just as we're called to be, you know, just, just as we go to the grocery store and we're careful about the ingredients of this or you know, our mechanic about this or whatever, God says, man, all the more, think about that and take that, take that thoughtfulness into realms which matter for eternity. Number three. Number four, I'm continuing. False teaching really uh, must be identified not only because of perceived harm, but deviation from the truth. False teaching needs to be identified, not just because, well, is this, um, do I perceive how this will be harmful, but back it up more because of deviation from what is true. Oftentimes the argument goes, okay, look, man, I know where to identify wrong teaching, but, you know, and someone's name or a particular belief or religion will be inserted. You know, I can't see much harm being done here. They're nice, they... Uh, They've babysat my kids before and so on. And, and certainly, and no one's arguing whether there's nice people. But it'll be argued, well, what's the big deal then? And it's a fair question. But Christ does not call us to be watchful merely because of perceived effects. He doesn't say, okay, if you can see and detect how the teaching is going to hurt others, well, then do something about it. But otherwise, you know, just, uh, just wait. Let it be. Instead, he encourages us from the text to beware on the basis of erroneous teaching. One reason is because that former reason is merely pragmatic. It's a man-centered approach. Man is the authority. In other words, well, if, it's, if things work and it seems to work okay by my standard of work, no biggie. But that's not the primary principle. It's about, is this honoring the Lord and His Word? Consider an illustration from ancient times. One of the very important duties in ancient times, we see this in Ezekiel 33 and 34, was the duty of a watchman. He would sit on the wall in all kinds of crazy hours of the night, and he would sit on the wall, and what, he, what, what would he do? He would watch, and they didn't have GPS and satellites and radars then, he would watch to see when the enemy was coming. And as soon as he spotted something out of the ordinary, he would err on the side of what? Hey, we got, we got an issue here, let's be on guard. Now imagine if that watchman said, well, I'll, let me take a different approach. I'm going to wait until damage is done to the city. And then once I can see the damage done, then I'll say something. Would that be a faithful watchman? Fail. Get that guy out of here. Put him in jail. He's a failure as a watchman. 
The point is to call something out before damage is done. That's what's most loving. Imagine with a melamine scandal. Well, wait to see if 300,000 babies are injured, some die. Then say something. No, no. No, say, love people. Love people by saying it right away. We identify truth not because, first and foremost, of perceived effects, but because, first and foremost, it deviates from our good God and His perfect Word. Does that make sense? Number five. False prophets are inwardly corrupt whether or not they realize it. They're inwardly corrupt whether or not they realize it. Look at verse 15. Notice the words there. Ravenous wolves. Inwardly, ravenous wolves. Inwardly, meaning the part that we can't see. Only God can see that. And this is Christ's, this is gentle, loving Jesus' careful metaphor, his carefully chosen metaphor to describe these individuals. He doesn't refer to them as, well, sheep that need a little help, or mean sheep. He doesn't refer to them as, well, a, a dog. And nearly does he even say wolf. He says, notice, ravenous wolf. Ravenous wolf. He does this because he cares deeply for you and for me and for his word and that we receive the true knowledge of eternal life. In the same way that if you're a mom and you had that melamine, you would say, man, those guys who are dumping that in, those guys are ravenous wolves. You ought to say that if you're loving. A few observations about literal wolves to help us understand what Christ is saying. And I asked one of our members here, Travis Rickards, he's done a bunch of research on wolves. Wolves, first, are the greatest threat to sheep. They're the sheep's number one enemy. Number one. Because to show you, false teaching then is one of the greatest enemies to God's people. Do you see that? Wolves are very intelligent creatures, usually cunning, careful, calculated. Travis told me that wolves are far more opportunistic than people realize. They do target the weak and the young, but if they find a strong, healthy buck that they can take advantage of, they will take it. They will never waste an opportunity to make a kill. Travis said, I once saw a situation where a pack attacked a moose, wounded it, but were scared off, and instead of coming back for the moose, they went and killed an elk nearby and returned to the moose later when it had died of its wounds. Wolves are persistent. They don't give up easily. They're always on the lookout. They travel large distances. When they sleep, it's almost always on high ground. They're strong. They're intimidating. And as one, one writer wrote, one historian wrote, he said, whether the sheep become a prey depends on the conduct of the shepherd. So it is the shepherd's job of respective flocks and local churches to stand up and do the unfun task of saying, hey, this is the deal. This is the deal. Church leaders need to be faithful and watchful against these things. For this reason, Ian Hamilton, great British pastor and theologian at Cambridge, he wrote this. He says, false teaching, therefore, isn't simply another variety of teaching that uh, this needs politely to be avoided, but is damnable and is to be exposed and avoided at all costs. Fifth, sixth, we must guard ourselves against wolf-likeness. We must guard ourselves. Emphasis on ourselves. You, me, I as someone called by God to teach, I have to guard that I don't become a wolf. Guard myself. This is a warning to be on the lookout for ourselves. The Apostle Paul wrote in Acts 20, Verse 28, he said, look, be on guard for yourselves. He was talking to church leaders at the church in Ephesus, late first century here. 
And for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Notice, it is God's church. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Are you kidding me? From within? Yes. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering night and day for a period of three years. This is how Paul attempted to shepherd this. I did not cease to admonish or to warn each one with tears. What a faithful, what a godly pastor. He went to everyone and warned them and confronted them and loved them and spoke truth to them. Why? Because these sheep-clothed wolves eventually did rise up. I talked to a good friend of mine who's a pastor of a very large church back east. A couple days ago, he said, you'll never believe what happened. I've been at this church over 10 years, and wolves rose up from both in the leadership team and in the congregation to try to destroy the whole church. And these things just happen. These things just happen. How should we prevent ourselves? Just six quick things that for myself I need to do. Do not go beyond Scripture. Bind yourself to properly interpreted Scripture. Number two, stay accountable to a New Testament kind of local church. Stay accountable to a New Testament kind of local church. Do not isolate yourself from a body of believers and God's people. This is what Joseph Smith did. This is what Charles Taze Russell did. They said, well, everybody else is wrong and, and, you know, wisdom has died with me. No, man, there's the body of Christ. Go be a part of it. They, They became prey to Satan's influence as a result. Number three, be teachable. Be teachable. Examine what you believe and the things you're holding to. Examine if those are true. Again, Scripture, of course. Number four, avoid new teaching. Avoid new teaching. What do I mean by new teaching? Those that God's people haven't come up with in centuries past. Why? Because we, they have had the same Holy Spirit and the same book as us for the last 20 centuries. We're not coming up with anything that they didn't already see. Oh, I found this new thing, you know, in in 1914. No, friend, not 1914. Matter of fact, Jesus says no one knows the exact day that it's going to happen. Number five, learn how to properly study Scripture. Learn, Learn proper biblical hermeneutics. Learn how to apply correct logic and hermeneutics to the Word of God. We have materials for that. You can ask your GC leader. Number six, prayer. Pray to God to protect us. Guard ourselves against wolf-likeness. Number seven, fruit. Number seven, will disguise false teachers from the true. Verse 16 to 18 and verse 20. Fruit. So there is a way to recognize them, though it's difficult sometimes. Notice verse 16. Jesus says this. You will know them by their fruits. Okay, so they are recognizable by the fruits. And then he, and then he illustrates, it, illustrates it. And you will permit Jesus being God to mix his metaphors here. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? In other words, look, the fruit's going to correspond to the tree. Very simple. Verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. They're not going to be able to produce something that they're not really on the inside. Oh, they might be able to fake it and put on a show. But inwardly, they're not there until they bow the knee to Jesus, which we hope they do. And then verse 20, so then you'll know them by their fruits. Fruit, fruit is a metaphor in the Bible for the outward manifestation of the inward reality. You know, we can't see the roots of a tree, but we can see, okay, there's oranges on us. It's an orange tree. You will not recognize them as Little Red Riding Hood did, for example. My, what big teeth they have. What big wolfish eyes they have. You will not recognize them by their growl and their claws again. Super important to keep in mind. That's why Jesus gives a new metaphor. You recognize them by their fruit. Recall, just understanding fruit here, Jesus says in John fifteen eight. He says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He's talking about good fruit here. We are saved. One reason we're forgiven is to be fruitful as an individual, as a Christian. 
Now the question is, well, what's fruit biblically? And I, th- I, think, I think the Scriptures teach that fruit is three things. Three things fruit is talking about. Teaching. Your teaching, your words, your doctrine. Number one, we get that from places like Luke 6.45. Jesus says, out the mouth speaks that which, which fills the heart. Their teaching, right, is a product of usually of who they are. That's fruit. So the bad fruit with a false prophet would be those things that, albeit hard to see sometimes, will stray from biblical doctrine. Second fruit is character. Their, their true character. Not just what we see, but what's going on in their heart. True character. And third, I think you can make a good case that fruit is uh, their following, their disciples. What are the disciples like that they make? What are the people like that result from their teaching and their life and their ministry? Does that make sense? Who, who results from, from them? Fruit. Now, when we're talking of character, I think Christ here, in the context, is especially, he's not only referring to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, but I think in the context, he's referring to the Beatitudes. Turn back there really quick. So just to Matthew chapter 5, in the context here, he's, he's referring to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, Remember a while back we studied those. These are these, um, the Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are the, blessed are the, verse 3 through 12 of Matthew 5. These are these genuine, unfakeable characteristics from the inside out that will be true of every genuine Christian of all sheep. That's why he says, look, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Why are you blessed? Because you've already come to God for forgiveness, not because you're better than anybody. And we studied that a while back. And so good fruit then, let's, let's kind of flip it. Good fruit then that will not be characteristic of false teachers. Let's just go down the list a couple of them. Matthew 5, 3. These will be absent from false teachers. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. A false teacher will not be poor in spirit. What did that mean? Recall the Greek word poor. It means beggarly. It means bankrupt. And spirit means inwardly, like my inner moral spirituality. So he's saying, look, you, and it's somewhat of an apparent paradox here, but you are blessed. You are true. You truly, you already know God. You've already asked us forgiveness. If you understand that apart from Christ, you are like, you, you are like an impoverished beggar, morally speaking, before God. You know that you have nothing and less than nothing morally to offer God. You're blessed. You've, you've come to God because you know that morally speaking, you can offer Him nothing. The only way you can get to heaven, being infinitely bankrupt morally, is just by asking God's forgiveness. That's why we ask forgiveness. This is what Jesus means here. A false prophet will not have that. They'll say, oh yeah, Jesus died for our sin in the surface, but inwardly, they don't have that genuine brokenness over their own sin. It never goes away for a believer, by the way. I talk to a lot of you sometimes, you say, man, I just feel, uh, I just, I sinned against God again, and I'm super discouraged about it. Jesus says, you're blessed. Because you understand who you really are. Because your confidence is in Christ, not in the outward works that you can produce. False teachers will not have that. Those saved and going to heaven, they did not earn God's favor because of their impressive moral wealth, but they earned His wrath by their offensive moral filth. That is true of all of us as Christians. Which is why we put faith in God for forgiveness. Also, false teachers will not have Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These build off each other. They mourn. What do they mourn? They mourn that they are morally poor, morally bankrupt before God. They, they have a genuine sadness over this. And they know that God forgives. They love that God forgives, but they still they, they experience a genuine sorrow inwardly when they sin. 
Not because, not because their reputation might not look as good anymore, but because they love God. False teachers are not so. False teachers would say, I'm blessed because I'm pretty wealthy morally, spiritually. I'm not that bad. Bad fruit is a satisfaction in thinking you're a pretty good person. Good fruit is a devastation knowing that we are sinful before God, but that Christ forgives. And so we experience that simultaneous sorrow, but joy in Christ. We go on, just two more minutes there. We're out of time. Matthew 5, 5. Fruit absent in false teachers. Blessed are the meek. This humility. Bad fruit would be an attitude of being proud of ourselves because of our moral greatness, because of our religious performance. But good fruit is a humble thankfulness to God in light of our great sinfulness. You're blessed if that's your attitude, friend. The latter. And we'll do one more here. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that righteousness, true righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Bad fruit would be an individual who feels as if they're filled up and not in need of more holiness. But good fruit is someone who knows that they are empty of holiness and so they hunger for more. They think, I want to be more like Christ. I haven't arrived. Uh, genuinely inside, they have this. They don't just say that, oh yeah, I need to grow. No, they have specific areas and they know, man, I, re- I need to grow and become more like Christ. Christ says, you're blessed if this is you. Because you are seeing yourself for who you really are. You'll be satisfied. God will grow you. The end of which will be in heaven. Do not be deceived, friends. Some of you might be wolfish tonight. It's very possible. I pray to God that if you are, you would see this and turn from this. And I want to ask for our members, especially at Cornerstone, that you would commit to praying for the leadership at Cornerstone that we would not become wolves. Please pray for that. It's not a gimme that the pastor of Cornerstone and the leadership of Cornerstone won't be wolves. This is no gimme. Please pray for us. This is utmost serious. John Owen says this in the late 1600s. I love this quote on just the importance of the sincerity of the British preacher and theologian. He says, A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. He is no more than what he is in secret before holy God. It matters not how much he can wow a crowd, how many Twitter followers he has and all that. What he is broken before Almighty God, the God of the Bible. He's no more than that. Please pray for us that we would not be false teachers. And then last, very briefly, if they do not turn to biblical Christ or forgiveness, number eight, false prophets will face eternal punishment. They will face eternal punishment just like anyone else who doesn't put faith in the biblical Christ. Just a very sober warning, warning from Jesus, who, who, because of his love for humanity, he spoke more about hell than he did heaven. We'll, we'll, he'll, get, he'll talk more about that later. And, uh, matter of fact, next week, Lord willing, in verses 21 to 24 and down. Notice what he says in verse 19. Every tree. Notice. Every. I mean, this is wide. This is broad, sweeping, comprehensive here. Please look what it says. Look what, look what Jesus says. Every tree that does not bear these good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, it's not hard to understand what he's saying there. You never want to be in the category in the Bible that's in the fire. You never want to be in that category. Every tree. Every tree. I have someone who come to me, some people who come to me sometimes and, and say, well, you know, why do, why do some pastors focus so much on the truth and getting it right? Why is that such a big deal? Because otherwise, we risk, and it's a fair question, 
Otherwise, we risk being in the category of a false prophet who, verse 19, Jesus says, you're going to be cut down and over. You're going to be in the fire. James 3.1 says, those who are teachers will incur stricter judgment. Those who do not believe in the biblical Christ for simple faith and forgiveness, and those who, those who then teach those things, they're doubly accountable. Hell will be hotter for them. It'll be hotter because they're leading people astray. And so by God's grace, we as a leadership want to be in the category of 2 Timothy 2.15. We'll put it up here real quick. We want to be those who are diligent to present ourselves approved to God as a workman. How do we do that, God? How do we not be ashamed? Accurately handle the word of truth. Accurately handle the word of truth. And by God's grace, may we do so here at Cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. You love us so much. Evidenced by all of the words of Scripture that we have that are so clear about who Jesus is, that it is faith in Him, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, by which forgiveness comes and the peace and the assurance of heaven. Thank You, Lord. I pray for everyone here tonight that they would put faith in the true knowledge of Christ and experience Your goodness and love. In Jesus' name, Amen.